It's been about two weeks or so, a couple of weeks since Christmas, which means that for many of you, you've got two more weeks to dread what's coming in the mail, which is that credit card statement that you so faithfully spent on Christmas. I'm sure that many of you are thinking, boy, it was great. We got to give so many things, and now we're going to receive the bill for all those things. It's coming due, is it not? And I, I think about the amount of money that is spent on Christmas, and maybe you're a little bit like me, and sometimes you just, boy, you just get frustrated. Uh, maybe because you don't have as much as you'd like to spend, or you spend more than you need to, or you wind up getting that bill, and you think, where did it all go? And 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 Christmas spending is, is a racket, that's for sure. It is Christmas uh, often today can drive you nuts because it's extremely materialistic in a lot of circles. Uh, it is uh, not exactly the way that the Bible describes the first Christmas, and yet uh, we, we have changed it into something different. I have no problem, obviously, with, with giving gifts and all of that. But I came across an article this week that's, that spoke on the fact of what would you save if you skipped Christmas? How much money would you save if you just skipped it? Now, some of you think, well, I'd love to do that. I would absolutely love to be able to skip Christmas altogether and just maybe be together with my family, and that'll be our gifts. I know there was one family in our church this year that I was aware of. They said, we're not doing gifts this year. We're going somewhere together. We're going to share an experience. And I thought that was unique and, and creative. And here's what the average person will spend on Christmas, just to give you an idea of what you've got coming in the mail and then what you could have saved had you not spent all of that. On gifts, the average person spends $750.68. You say, well, that's not even close to what I spent. Well, the average person, you may be way above average, all right? Or you may, thankfully, in this case, be below average. It's one thing that it's okay to be below average, I guess. On a tree, if you if you purchase a tree each year, on average, Americans spend $41.50 on a tree. Now, maybe more or less or whatever. On cards and postage. Now, this is something I've never understood about Christmas. We send all these cards out. And then two weeks later, they're still hanging up somewhere, and you've forgotten to take them off. You peel them off the wall. They remove the paint with the tape that you put them up on the wall with, so now you've got to replace the paint. And then you've got this stack of cards. And is it not difficult then to know what to do with all those cards? Because if you throw them away, you've just disrespected that person completely. They'll never know. They will never know. Nobody has ever come to my house, and I'm sure nobody's ever come to your house, two years later and said, where's that Christmas card I sent you? Well, I hope you saved that thing. Nobody ever, but we, we, we're afraid of throwing those away. Somebody said, I'm not at all, but but we, we, we keep all of those, and then maybe you, you stuff them in a box somewhere, and 15 years later, you wonder, why on earth did I save all this stuff? And then still, though, you, you don't want to disrespect them, so you keep it longer. But on average, the person, the average American spends $32.43 on cards and postage. Maybe more, maybe less for you. On flowers, just maybe poinsettias or something like that, $22.61. On food and candy, now I find this total to be relatively low, I think, in many cases, $95.04. And maybe it's low because I ate more than $95.04 worth of food and candy at Christmas. I don't know. I'm paying for that now, I guess. Decorations for the home and, and other places, $51.43. Travel. If you had to travel for Christmas, my family did. We went to Danville, which is where my grandparents live, and then we went to Louisville, where my parents live, and we traveled back. Maybe some of you traveled further than that. Maybe you had people coming in. On average, the American family will spend $960.50 on travel. And that includes all things uh, associated with the travel. And so, in, in total, if you did not travel, 
on average, you'll spend about $1,000 at Christmas. If you do travel, double it to about $2,000. Imagine what you could do with $2,000 if you decided, you know what, we're just skipping Christmas. Now, some of you are going to say, well, listen, the pastor told me to skip Christmas. Now, when it comes back around, now, don't do that, all right? If you don't buy yourself or your spouse something next year, don't blame it on me, but I'm just giving you the idea. We spend a lot of money on Christmas. If it were just Christmas, maybe we could say, okay, well, our spending habits are not really out of control. But the last statistic I saw was that, on average, Americans spend $1.22 for every dollar they make. Now, let that sink in for just a second. $1.22, on average, for every dollar we make. What does that mean? Not a trick question. We're in a hole. We are upside down. Why? Because we spend more than we make, on average. The average credit card debt, this blew me away. Maybe you know this. Average credit card debt, regardless of if a person has a credit card anymore or not, average household credit card debt is $8,000. Some of you are saying, well, I'm way above average on that one. No, I hope not. Some of you are well below average, and you're thankful for that. $8,000. Financial stress results from all of this. In fact, 71% of Americans in an American Psychological Association study, 71% of Americans identified money as a major source of stress in their lives. And some of you said, amen. It is something that can cause and does cause major stress. 80% of people who are getting divorced say that money was one of the major, not just a minor factor, one of the major factors in the breakup of their marriage. Arguments over. Think about how many times in your marriage, in your family, maybe you've remembered or you still experienced arguments over that. Or maybe you're a single person. You're just struggling to make it. Stress mounts up because of our finances. And so our handling of money, our way, and here's the point, our handling of money, our way, has led to crippling debt, to major stress, and to general dissatisfaction. We're not any good. Let's just be honest. As a whole, as Americans, as just people in general, we are awful, awful, and I include myself because I'm human just like you, awful at managing our money our way. And yet what do we do most often? We just still kind of make it up as we go. I'll figure it out. I've got this under control. I think of our young people that are here today, and, and right after I graduated from college, Nancy and I got married. I was 22 years old, and and we got married, and we, neither one of us had a job. We actually lived in the basement of the, BS, the BCM. We lived there when we first got married. Maybe some of you are living there now. That's where my wife and I live. Mark was coming on. And I, and I don't, and I don't, anyway, uh, <clears throat> Mark, Mark was coming on as a campus pastor and charged me uh, absolutely nothing to live there. And so I'm forever grateful to Mark, which is why I speak so highly of him, because Nancy and I neither one had a job when we first got married. And, and, uh, and boy, I tell you what, at that point in time in our life, it was apparent to me that I was up against some stuff that I was not prepared for. A lot of it had to do with how was I going to manage money and resources and all that. And yet it's interesting that, by and large, you just sort of expected to know it. You just figure it out. And rarely do we receive the, the right kind of instruction on that. Unless you study it, unless you really seek it out, you're just going to have to try to figure it out on your own, and I hope that that's not going to be the case, because our way, money done our way, results in stress and dissatisfaction and brokenness. There's an enormous amount of teaching in the Scripture on money, an enormous amount. 
People will estimate that the Lord himself talked more about money and things related to that than he did heaven or hell combined. And often he would equate the two. He would talk about money in terms of eternal salvation and, and how if we hang on too tightly to our money, then it makes it difficult for us to receive salvation because we place our trust in our stuff rather than in Jesus. Maybe you've heard some of those passages. And so Jesus seems to always stick his nose in where we'd rather him mind his own business. If you read the Scripture, you cannot ignore what the Lord said about money. You can't do it. And if you really desire to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot be satisfied with just winging it financially while submitting to the Scripture on everything else. You can't be satisfied with that. Some of you have experienced that. And so we're going to look today at maybe what did the Lord, what do the Scriptures know about money and possessions that we don't? What is it that He knew, and why did He always stick His nose into our business? And so we're going to look at what the Word, God's Word, has to say about money, the word on money. Last week we looked at the idea of becoming a true disciple of Jesus. and We looked at the scripture in Romans chapter 12 where it says that we are not to conform to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which comes primarily through God's word. And so we're going to look today at how we continue that. Of not being transformed, not, excuse me, not being conformed just to what the world has to say, but being transformed and then knowing God's will, and that includes knowing His will about the money and stuff that we have. And so today, if you've got your bulletin handy, I'd like for you to look on the back of it. You'll see that we're going to look at just some foundational truth. I don't have anything extremely profound to bring to you this morning, in the sense that this will be your financial tip of the century. I'm not here to give you your financial plan, but only to set some foundational truth in place and give you the implications and applications of all of that. I realize that there are some of you probably thinking there are some things pastors just shouldn't talk about, and this is one of them. This is one of those deals. You know what, Pastor, you really just tell me about salvation and how much the Lord loves me and the encouragement I can receive from walking with Him every day, and I will, I'll figure the other stuff out. It'll be okay. Now, some of you never tell me that personally, but you're thinking that. Good grief. You got here this morning. You looked on the back of the bulletin. Great. Talking about money. But let me tell you this. Because of my desire to be obedient to what I believe God has called me to do, and equally so coupled with my love for you as a church and as people of God, this is something that we cannot ignore. And I will tackle these topics with no apologies whatsoever. And I will tackle them in love and encouragement, as I try to always do. But we've got to cover these types of things. And so because I love you, because I want to be obedient to God, and because I want for you a life filled with purpose and satisfaction and no more shallow living and just floundering around as some of us probably experience, I want us to understand these things. And so I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 24. If you got a Bible handy, do that. <clears throat> if your version's a little bit different, or if maybe you forgot your Bible or didn't bring one this morning, then we'll try to get some of these verses up on the screen, particularly those from Psalm chapter 24. They'll be up there. I want you to look at it with me and follow along as I read it. It says in verse 1, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For He laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not set his mind on what is false, 
and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. And the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I want to give you some foundational truth this morning. You'll see the arrows on your bulletin will point to the implications of that. And then I want you to leave space at the very end to write down the application for all of this. So the first foundational truth is this, that He is Creator. The Lord Himself, He is Creator. It says there in verses 1 and 2, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. Why? For He has laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. If you go back to Genesis, in the very beginning, and look at Genesis 1, what does it say? God said, and then things were created. Let there be. And then God said, let there be, over and over and over. Now, understand that Genesis is not telling you how God created necessarily, but just that He created. The Bible stands on its own and says, deal with me as the truth. That's the way the Bible says it. You look for scientific evidence inside the Bible. It wasn't written to a scientific community. You're probably not going to find it there. The Bible just says God did it. He is the Creator. And it's repeated over and over and over in the Scriptures. And you'll see in Psalms quite often verses like this. The war of the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord because He created it. He is the Creator. In Psalm chapter 50, maybe just write down the reference. It says, and the Lord is talking to His people here and judging them. And He says, I will not accept the bull from your household or male goats from your pens. Verse 9, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. Psalm chapter 50. He says, look, how are you going to give me something I don't already own? He says, that's not what I'm looking for. It's just your sacrifices in life. He says, I want you and all of you. So he sets himself up over and over. I am the creator. The implication, you'll see the line drawn across then, is it all comes from him. And the implication, because he is creator, the implication is, it all comes from Him. Our money and our possessions. It says there in Psalm 50, He owns it all. It all comes from Him. If we're going to bring something to Him, it's something that He has given to us. I've heard it said, and we'll talk about this in a subsequent message in this particular series, but oftentimes we think, good grief, boy, the Scripture's pretty stiff. It, it says that I should give 10% of my money back to God, and well, the flip side of that is to look and say, well, the Lord lets me keep 90%. The grief, it's all His, and He lets me handle that much of it. Are you kidding? It's all His. It all comes from Him. Even our ability, the Bible says, write down this reference in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read you the verses. Verses 18, excuse me, 17 and 18. It says, you may say to yourself, all right, so, so maybe you say, well, look, now I understand that what I have comes from God. But listen, I went out and I earned it with my own two hands. Well, I, because of my brain, I, I have I've been able to get this particular job or whatever. He says, you may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember... 
that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. Even our ability to do whatever it is that we do comes from God. So not only what we have, but what we are able to do. In Job chapter 38, when, and, and if you get the chance to read the last four chapters of Job, actually probably the last five chapters, it's a very, it, you want to know what God thinks about our complaints toward him? Read those last few chapters. He never gives an answer as to why things happen to Job. He just says, Job, you're not God. Shut up. That's basically what he tells him for about four or five chapters there. And, and so in that, he says in there, he says, look, who gave man his understanding? Who, who put wisdom in your mind to even be able to think? Who gave you the aptitude that you have? It all comes from him. Our money, our possessions, our ability to make money, our aptitude to even think. Even your life situation, think about this for just a second. Not a single one of us in here chose where we would be born. Not a single one of us. None of us chose our parents. Some of us are thankful we had the parents we had. Some of us are not. You didn't choose your parents. Nobody chose when you would be born. You ever consider that? You ever consider the advantage you had just based upon the month you were born in? Or the year or the time period? Think if you'd been born 150 or so years ago. What would be different about your life? Think if you'd been born 500 years ago, what would be different? You, you didn't choose any of that. God did. God put you right here in your situation. You didn't choose your family. You didn't choose what your parents would like or dislike. My son Hank has no choice but to be a baseball fan. Why? Because I am. He has no choice but to pull against the Yankees. Why? Because I told him, and he knows this, you ask him what happens to Yankee fans in our house, and he'll tell you they have to sleep outside. He knows, do not do that. You have to sleep outside. And so he has no choice. His dad is a baseball guy, and that's just the way that it is. He didn't have any choice in that matter. And so none of us, regardless of what we may think that we have accomplished, none of us even chose the basic things that set us up. To where we are. None of you chose, really, which schools you went to when you were growing up. Parents did that for you. Some of you chose the college that you're now attending or the one that you did attend. You had a little bit of voice in that, but you didn't choose which professors were already there or what resources that university had. You just showed up on the scene. And there you are. God was in control of all of that. We are dependent upon the Lord for everything that we are everything we do, everything we have, everything we experience, and viewing ourselves or something else as the source of all that is to worship and be devoted to a false God. And often it's the God of self. And that's the God, little g, in America often. The God of self, our self-sufficiency, thinking that I have accomplished all of this. The Bible makes it clear, as does common sense, that it all comes from Him. Thinking and operating in any other way leads to disappointment, to dissatisfaction, and to destruction. Deuteronomy 8.19 says, don't forget all of that, because you'll experience disappointment if you forget where it all came from. So the first truth is God is creator. The implication thereof is that it all comes from Him. second truth is this. He is holy. He is holy. Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 through 6, asks some questions. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not set his mind on what is false, 
and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Answer those questions in your mind right now. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may come to his holy place? You? Me? Do you have clean hands and pure heart and perfect? Are you absolutely holy and without sin whatsoever? Have you ever set your mind on what is false? Have you ever thought negative things or lustful things or, or things that are not right? Have you ever done anything that's deceitful? Just not all the way the right thing to do. None of us qualify. Not a single one of us. Not you, not me, not anybody who's alive. All that goes to show me that it is only the Lord Himself who has that rightful place. He is holy. We all stand condemned and in desperation before Him. I love how Isaiah, in chapter 6, right down the reference, how he puts it. Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe some of us today would just stand as the same way Isaiah did and behold this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him. Each one had six wings, with two, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And here's what Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He stood in God's presence and he said, I'm not worthy. I, woe is me. I, look at my life compared to his perfectness and holiness. And Isaiah, who, who is the author, quite honestly, of that particular book, there he is. None of us compare either. He says, I am, I, I am dirty. I am unclean before the Lord. Who may ascend to His holy mountain? None of us apart from Him bringing us Himself. And I thank God that even though we are sinful, and even though we don't deserve one ounce of God's protection or provision or even His presence in our life, that He made a way for Jesus Christ to be the substitute for our sins so that through our faith in Him, as a result, He washes our sins away. And we stand before the Lord not as busted, broken-down sinners anymore, but as children of God through the power of Jesus. That's our only chance. Well, I'm thankful for that. But I have to be honest and say, you know what? He alone is holy. Only He is the one who is perfect and holy. And the implication of that is because He alone is holy. He sets the rules. None of us are holy enough and righteous enough to say, here's what life is to be about. Because He is holy, He sets the rules. He sets the standard. What is His standard? Holiness. What is His standard? Perfection. What's the only way we get there? Through Jesus Christ. That's it. So because He is holy, He sets the rules. None of us can say to God, well, listen, I think you're wrong. Because... You know, you have to look at my life and understand this. I, 
you know, yeah, I made a couple of mistakes here and there, but listen, I, you know, I know what's going on. Compared to what God is, we, just like Isaiah, look at ourselves and say, I'm unclean. I, I'm completely ignorant. I'm unwise. I don't compare to him. And so because of that, he sets the rules. I mean, who can argue with a perfect and holy God? I really don't have anything to say to God. Oftentimes, maybe you're like me, you complain about certain things, and then I stand back and I think, who am I talking to? Am I talking to one of my friends here that's also human? I maybe talk them into something. I'm just I'm standing before a holy God. What on earth do I have to say to him other than, God, forgive me and clean me up. And, God, I'm thankful that you don't look at me the same anymore, but you see Jesus now instead of me. I don't have anything else to say. Lord, you are the one in charge. God, you set the rules for my life. Because he's holy, he sets the rules. And with our money, just like every other area of our life, he alone sets the rules. He alone has the right to do that. And the truth is, we've got to admit our shortcomings. If you look at what, what our financial situation is, stress, debt, uh, dissatisfaction, all of those things, we have to admit our shortcomings, our sin in these areas, and, and then submit and yield to His standards, to His policies, to what He says we ought to be doing, and look to Him for guidance. The truth is, He is the ultimate financial advisor and everything else is just secondary. I went this week to a bookstore, and I picked up a copy of the Wall Street Journal. I don't have a clue what I'm looking at when it comes to the Wall Street Journal. I just have to admit to you. I, I felt pretty sophisticated, though, when I walked out of there. Because I went to that bookstore, and not only did I buy the Wall Street Journal, but I bought Forbes magazine. You ever read Forbes magazine? I hadn't. Not only that, but I bought... Entrepreneur Magazine. Man, I'm, listen, I was taking a step up. And then I bought Money Magazine. And I kept shaking it. No money fell out. I was wondering. I couldn't get anything out of it. But I guarantee you, if we're there for a second, I probably impressed that young lady that was standing there checking me out at that particular uh, bookstore with my depth of financial knowledge. Obviously, I know something. I'm getting all these publications. And you know, i tell you what. I'll be honest with you. I read through, through these things, and there's some really solid, and very practical advice on, on what to do with your money. But I want to say this to you, that the truth is that in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot get these things out of order. We cannot. We cannot watch the business channels on television and read all the magazines and publications we want and get this out of order and begin to say, well, let me look at what the world says about it, or let me go first to somebody who may not believe the Bible, but they sure know about money. The first place we have to go, because this is where we go for every other piece of advice in our life. We go there for salvation. We go there for encouragement. The Bible has to trump all of this. Now, does that mean that this other stuff is useless? Not at all. But it has to be secondary to what the Word of God says. And when there is a contradiction... When there is a discrepancy, when the Bible says something and the world seems to say something else, what wins? The Bible has to win every single time. Well, let me tell you this. That's not going to be easy. Why? Because most of the time this is all we've looked at. Is that not true? Let's just be honest for just a second. When I got married, I told you that story that we are just getting started. I had no clue. Nobody really sat and taught me. What does is, what is God have to say about the foundation that I view all of this stuff through? Most of the time, we just go here. 
we look at these magazines, these publications. We go to our financial advisor, and they're all great. Let me tell you that. I have no problem. Some of you are in that business. And I pray that in your business that you first seek the Lord. That way you'll give solid financial advice in the order that God wants it to be. But the problem is, often we go here first. And when things go south, we say, well, maybe I ought to read my Bible. I wonder what God has to say. Maybe I ought to pray about that just a little bit. I want to challenge you. Because I've challenged myself over this last week. The worst part about being a preacher is I get beaten up through the week by all this stuff. I've got to tell you. I just have to be honest with you. The Lord's all over me this week. I'm absolutely all over me. And so I don't stand at any particular point of strength. I just tell you, I stand on the truth of God's Word that this has to be primary all the time. It has to be. And when there's a discrepancy, the Bible wins, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when God seems to say something, you think, well, God, it just flies in the face of every good, solid human financial advice I could receive. The Bible always wins. Trust God above all else. And then all of these things, let me tell you, you'll get more out of these if you know God's truth than you would ever have done. Because then God will bless it. God will help you understand and then apply those principles the right way. Boy, I sure hope that makes sense to you. hope you understand my heart in that. It's God who sets the rules, who is the ultimate financial advisor. Everything else is secondary. Third truth is this, that He is King. He is King. Again, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And that may sound really redundant, but I got a feeling that the psalmist just didn't want us to mistake. Who is the King? The Lord Himself, God Almighty. There is but one King over this world and over our universe and over us, whether we recognize Him or not. He is the one King, the Almighty he brings us blessing. He brings us victory. He brings us salvation. He is here for us. You look at that. He's on our side, those verses imply. He's here to fight on our behalf. And by definition, the king is in charge. He's the one that we follow. And, and because of who he is and how much he loves us, he's the one we want to follow. But the more you get to know Jesus, the king, the more you love him, you want to follow him. He deserves as king our loyalty. And our respect. So the implication is this. I am accountable. I am accountable. If he owns it all, if he sets the rules, if he governs it all as king, then we are his subjects and we are accountable to him. Each of us, the Bible is very clear, must one day give an account for our lives. The first account will be based upon salvation. Did we or did we not place our faith in Jesus alone for salvation? That will be the first one. The Bible says we'll stand in judgment there. And those who have received Jesus by faith will go to eternal life in heaven. Those who have rejected Jesus, counting on being just a good person or having the good outweigh the bad, or those who have outright said, I don't want anything to do with him, they will then go to eternal punishment in hell. I will be clear on that. Not only will we stand in judgment for our lives and salvation, but the Bible is clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that there will also be a judgment 
based upon what we have done. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that we may be repaid for what, for each, for, so that he may be, rather, repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. What you have done in the body, the works that you've done, whether good or bad, those things that he's referring to there is what have you done with your time? What have you done with your money? What have you done with all the stuff that God gave you? What did you do with your talent? What did you do with your energy? How did you lead your family? How did you serve your church? How did you reach out to other people? All those things. If you are a believer in Jesus, one day those things are going to stand up. And that doesn't affect your eternal salvation, just the rewards you receive in heaven. And included in that is what did you do with your money? What did you do with your stuff? The verse right before that says, Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Why? Because we're all going to give an account. We're all accountable for what we do. So we better make it our aim to please Him. Which means, I am accountable to Him. I better know what does He have to say about my money and my stuff. One day I'll give an account. I'll stand before Him. And the questions may be, what did I do with all that God gave me? What did I do with it? Where did it all go? If you make, on average, I believe the figure is correct, I read it this week, $25,000 a year during your entire working life, just that, a million dollars will pass through your hands every time. You'll manage a fortune. Where did it all go? Some of you make far more than that. Well, the responsibility then increases, does it not? Where did it all go? Did I use it to make an eternal impact? Did I view myself as the manager and not the owner? Did I follow God's principles? Was I consumed by my stuff? Did it control me? Was I constantly stressed out because of what I thought I deserved that I didn't get or what I didn't have that I needed, I thought? Did it rule me? Did I see money and possessions as the ultimate in life? Those questions, I have a feeling, will one day be what we have to answer for with our money and our stuff. And so let me give you three applications, one for each of those. Very simple things that I challenge you to do this week. The first is this, and they're not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to write them down there on your paper. And for some of you, that's going to freak you out. It's just not going to work for you. Understand, do the best you can. You look at the first one. That first little line there goes across that it all comes from Him. And the application then is to acknowledge God's ownership. Acknowledge God's ownership. Some of us have never done that. Maybe you've just been ignorant of it. Maybe you just haven't, haven't known that. Well, you know what? I never really thought about that. Or some of us have just refused to say, no, 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 this is mine. Acknowledge God's ownership. And let me challenge you with this. It's very simple. In doing that, I want to challenge you, each morning when you wake up and every night before you go to bed, before you do anything else in the morning and hopefully before you fall asleep at night, maybe you'll just have so many things at night you just fall asleep rattling off, list out before God, you know what, God, I'm thankful for this. And God, I'm grateful for this. And God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Prayers of gratitude. Hank, my son, I love it. I love to hear him pray. Because 
and we and, and I tend to try to lead our kids in a little little prayer at night before they go to bed, and they repeat after me some things. And every once in a while, Hank will say, "Daddy, I've got some things I want to pray for." He's four years old, and so I, I'll be kneeling there by the bed, and I've got my eyes closed, and, and apparently he's got his eyes open because he starts and, and goes on for a while, thanking God for everything in his room, literally. And he's looking at something, maybe a poster on the wall. God, thank you for that. And thank you. And he'll, he'll see everything that he's got. And all his little figurine stuff, his toys and all that. And he just starts naming them. I mean, by name. You know, he's got, you know, Darth Vader and, and all these guys. I mean, and he starts naming them all off. And, and, and every once in a while he'll do that during the, the meal prayer time. Hank, Hank likes to pray. He's our guy that he prays out loud for our family most of the time. And every once in a while we'll all have our heads bowed. And instead of just thanking God for the food, he'll start looking around the dining room. He goes around, and he, thank, you know, and he thanks God for every person at the table. And all. I wish I prayed like Hank. I wish I had his grateful attitude. I wish I looked around in my life, and I saw how good God has been, and I said, thank you. I wish I prayed like Hank. It's my challenge to you, the challenge that I received this week from Hank and from Jesus. Is to pray like that. And you may say, well, that's, that's sort of elementary. You better believe it is. But significant Christians, as we looked at last week, do basic things really well. Gratefulness. Some of us get to thinking, well, I don't have this and I don't have that. And, well, that person's got this. And, well, if God had only blessed me like that, thank God. In the morning before you do anything else and at night before you fall asleep, rattle them off. Pray like Hank. And maybe, just maybe, that on the inside, as we looked at last week, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It will change your mind about your stuff. And maybe you'd say to God, I am the manager, you are the owner. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have given me. So because he owns it all, acknowledge God's ownership. Second thing is this, because he sets the rules, seek out his instruction. Seek out his instruction. Very simple things to do. Study God's Word. We're reading through the Bible all year long. And, and the way that I'm, that I'm doing it, you may choose a different path. Is tonight we'll study in our evening service the book of Exodus. So I'm going to read Exodus this next week. Last week we read Genesis. Maybe you, you do it differently. I don't know. But however it is, study God's Word. Understand what He has to say. Pray for wisdom. God, I don't know what to do with my stuff, with my money. I really don't. Help me. Pray for wisdom. God says he, he freely gives wisdom for those who trust Him, those who come to Him desiring it. Humble yourself and, 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 and develop in you a teachable spirit. And some of us, the truth is, we, we say, well, you know, I kind of got this together. I used to coach baseball years ago. And I tell you what, regardless of how talented a player was, my favorite guys to coach were the ones who wanted to be coached, the ones who were coachable, the ones who who you'd say to do something, and, and they'd give it a shot. They may not be able to do it right then, but they'd give it a shot. They were teachable. They were coachable. Develop a teachable spirit. In the back, on, the, on your way out the door, there, there are some resources there, a couple of resources that I'd recommend. And they're for sale back there for $10 a piece. One of them's, they're both by the same author. One of them's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And it's an incredible read, let me tell you. It, it, it will change your perspective on a lot of things. I'll just leave it at that. The other is called the treasure, treasure principle. And the subtitle is Unlocking the Secret of Joyful Giving. You know the Bible says be a joyful giver? 
And some of us say, well, I'm not going to give till I can feel joyful about it. You know, that's probably never going to happen. You know, I, I understand. But, it, but unlocking that secret, those, those resources, resources are back there. And study. Seek out God's principles, His instruction. And the third thing is this. Start being accountable. Because you are accountable, start recognizing that and operating accordingly. For some of us, let me give you some very practical advice financially. Some of you need to be on a budget. You say, what in the world is that? It's not a four-letter word, I promise. It's got a couple more. A budget. I would be happy to point you towards some resources. Some of you have no idea where your money goes. That money's not accountable to you or anybody else. You just spend it. One dollar and 22 cents you spend for every dollar you make. And usually there it goes. No idea how to track it. Some of the, the wisest thing you would do is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get accountable and actually write it down. You say, well, that's kind of intimidating. Just write it down. Just spend a month or so doing that. And then as a result, set goals in light of God's instruction. Financial goals based on what he says. Ask God to help him to, to show his light, shine his light on all areas of your life and help you to see where is it, God, that I'm not following your principle. Lord, where is it that with my money and my stuff, I'm sort of on my own out here doing my own thing? And answer some of these very tough questions. Being accountable. Is my life revolving around Jesus? Or is it revolving around my stuff? Am I honoring God as the creator, or rather the owner, of what He has entrusted to me? How can I use what God has given me to help someone else and to impact them for all eternity? Have I over-accumulated? Just look in the attic or in the basement for piles of dust about three inches high, and you'll find out what you've over-accumulated. i got some stuff like that. You with me? Stuff I haven't seen in ten years probably. It's, it's valuable. It's in that box that I'm not going to touch. Am I spending wisely? Am I selfish, jealous, proud? Am I living only for now or for eternity? Am I giving to the causes that God values most? Is there anything that I value more than being obedient to what God says? What am I doing to train my children and those people that I have influence over to obey God's instruction regarding money and possessions? The series that we're going to continue next week, I really believe, not because of my profound statements, but just simply because we're going to look at God's Word, has the power to transform your life, to bring you satisfaction, contentment, to make you a person that has an impact for all eternity. Your money is God's business. And He says so over and over in His Word. Not only that, but your life is also God's business. Because He created you. And He sets the rules for you. And He says that we are accountable to Him. The great news is that God is not some cruel king. He is a loving Father. And He's made a way to restore us so that we can then reach His standard. And that's only through our faith in Jesus Christ. He offers grace to us, a free gift of salvation that we never deserved and we cannot earn. And faith in Him is our only appropriate response. And then obedience follows after that. So my question to you is, does He have control of your life? 
Have you received His free gift of salvation through your faith, not trying to earn it, but just saying, Lord, I need you in my life. Please forgive me. And I invite you to be in charge. Have you done that? And then if you have, are you being obedient in the area of money and possessions? Do you see God as the owner of all things, as the one who gets to set the rules, and as the one to whom you are accountable? Let's pray together. Lord, this is a tough subject. Because it hits so close to home. It shows so much about our hearts and who we really are. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would convict us. That your Holy Spirit would put pressure on our hearts and our minds to respond to you. Or we'd not walk away still viewing ourselves as the owners, as the ones who set the rules and the ones that are accountable only to ourselves. But where we'd see you as the owner. And we'd yield to your authority to set the rules. Lord, we realize that we're accountable to you and we do our best to line up our lives, our money, our stuff with what you say. Lord, set us free from our dissatisfaction, from our stress. We thank you that the life you have planned for us, Lord, is one of impact and one of security and one of fruitfulness and one of joy. So, Lord, may in this area of our life we not... Hold this back from you, but wholeheartedly say, God, you have access, and I submit. Lord, for those who may be struggling with the initial decision to just give control of their lives to you to begin with, I pray that you give them boldness and courage, that you would convince them of their need for a Savior, Lord, that they would respond to your grace and faith today. We love you. We praise you for your word and for the instruction that it brings. And we thank you the owner of all things, for how good you have been to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.